Well, uh, it's good to be here with you, and uh, I want to say thank you to Father Sam. I'm going to just be bold and call him Father Sam and take a little joy in that because it's true. I got to know him when he was in college, and uh, he was about as tall as he is now, uh, which is taller than me. Um, in fact, he was about as solid as he is now, and also more solid than me. Uh, but I was older than him. Um, in fact, as I think of it now, he's still younger than me. <laughs> but where was I going? He, Father Sam uh, has grown from a, a man of character, a young man of character, into a godly shepherd. And what, um, it, what strikes me is it is beautiful as someone who has known him for a good time, for a good long time, to see where he, he is. And you are, I, I assure you, I, I know you know this, you are blessed to have a loving shepherd who prays for you and knows you and teaches you God's word week by week. It's a precious and rare thing if we consider the entire landscape of the world that we have today and of all of history. We are in, we are blessed to have someone like him. So I'm, I'm delighted, I'm delighted by this and thank you for the opportunity, Sam, to be here. When I was in high school, I first became acquainted with William Shakespeare, and uh, uh, there was a festival of one-act plays uh, at my high school, and I would audition, and then you get cast in one of these one-act plays, and uh, I got the opportunity to be different people, uh, parts over time, but it, it, either my junior year or my senior year, I can't remember, uh, I was cast as King Lear in Act One, Scene One of King Lear, um, which, if you know the play, is where so much of the uh, the drama gets started. And um, my director, who now is actually godmother of uh, our oldest son, uh, needed to figure out a way to help me, a 17-year-old, begin to climb into the skin of an old man who is king. And um, so I got a you know a, a wig. A, uh, a, a gray-haired wig, and I, I got some wrinkles on my face with some makeup, and, and I strolled out like a 17-year-old would onto the stage, and she realized I needed a little help even with the way I walked, and so she, we went into board games and got out dice and little pieces and stuck them inside my shoes so that I, I walked out with a little bit of a creaky walk. And um, all this in an effort to help me sympathize with, empathize with, climb into the skin of this, this character. Now, you actors in the room, if there are any, you do this all the time. Um, I had a whale of a time playing this part, but I don't think I really ever was able to grasp and appreciate King Lear. In fact, I saw him as a fool. I saw him as an arrogant fool, maybe at times as a senile arrogant fool. He ruined his kingdom. He destroyed his family and ruined his own life while he did it all. And um, I, over the years, I taught, I've taught it to college students. I've even had the opportunity to teach executives or lead executives in discussions about King Lear and succession planning and that sort of thing. And the more I read the play, uh, the more I have come to appreciate uh, Lear and um, see that, yeah, he is a fool. He's an arrogant fool. Maybe he's a senile arrogant fool. 
but he's not much better than me. Well, we didn't come to hear a sermon about King Lear today, did we? Um, so let me take a moment and ask for the Lord's help as we, as we begin exploring his word. <clears throat> Almighty God, we thank you for your word, and we ask that by your spirit you would come and meet with us so that we may behold wonderful things for Jesus' sake. Amen. In the book of Amos, which was our Old Testament reading, we became acquainted with a king who was committed to not hearing God's word. So awful was the word that God would speak to him, the word of judgment and truth, that he sent someone to tell Amos to leave. Get out of town. We really don't want to hear what you have to say. And Amos in return said, look, I'm not, I didn't choose this. I'm not a prophet by training. I was a shepherd. But the Lord told me to tell you that your daughters will be given as prostitutes, or your wife will be given as a prostitute. Your daughter and your sons, your daughters and your sons will, become, will be killed, and your land will be divided and destroyed, and you will go into exile. Amos didn't want to say that. The king didn't want to hear it. But much like King Lear, and much like King Lear, he wanted to send away the wise people in his life. Now, see, King Lear, in that opening scene that I first played when I was 17, he was at the point in his career where it was time to step down and uh, become the chairman emeritus of the board. And everybody needed to get up and raise a glass and give a speech, especially the people who were going to inherit uh, and succeed him, his three daughters. And uh, so they all did their thing. Let's think of it as maybe the, the, the Jubilee celebration or something like that we may have seen on television. And so these princesses stand and honor their, their father by saying how wonderful he is. And the first one gets up and and I'm paraphrasing, and says something like, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, I, I love you. That's not what Shakespeare said. But I can't remember exactly what Shakespeare said here, but it was an excessive, flattering comment from his daughter. And his second daughter got up, and not to be outdone, she said, huh, I really love you. Really, 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 really love you, love you, love you. Again, that's a paraphrase. Not very Shakespearean, although it might be iambic pentameter. Someone will have to check. And she, she sits down, and Lear, in both cases, smiles, complacent, arrogant, foolish smile. He sits down and says, you get a third of my, my kingdom, and you get a third of my kingdom. My darling daughters, I love you. And then it turns, the camera, as it were, comes to the third daughter, Cordelia, the youngest. Cordelia, what do you have to say, says the king, to get your third and most opulent portion of the land? 
Nothing. Nothing? Cordelia, ponder your words. Nothing will come from nothing. Speak again. Nothing. And she goes on to explain, how can I, how can I enter into this foolish fiction? I'm your daughter. I love you as a daughter should love you. But I'm not going to flatter you like these two women who came before me. If you understood that, you would never have asked me to participate in this. And Lear flies into a fury. And he banishes his daughter from his kingdom. And actually, remarkably, there are two men who are courting her, who are standing there in court. And the first one backs away. With no dowry, with no land, I think I'll, uh, I'll back out of this marriage. The other who would love to marry her is the king of France. And when offered the opportunity to exit the relationship or the, 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 the courtship, the king of France says something beautiful. He says, she may have no dowry, but she herself is her own dowry. And he takes her with, her, with him back to France. Much like with Amos, we have a king who is such a fool that he cannot bear to hear the truth from people who would speak it to him, from people who will tell him the truth, from people who love him. So he wraps himself in lies, surrounds himself with liars, and lives in a state of folly. In fact, in the play King Lear, the only people who can penetrate his bubble are people who disguise themselves and enter into his life to try to tell him the truth. None of us are like this, right? None of us like to hear the flattery of lies. None of us are afraid of hearing the truth. What if the truth was so severe as Amos' truth was, that not to hear it was to doom yourself, to exile, would you want to hear the truth then? It's hard to hear the truth. A lawyer approached Jesus in Luke's gospel in what I think is Luke's uh, exploration of the two great commandments. In Matthew, we have an exploration of this. In Luke, or in, in Mark, we have an exploration of this. It's in Matthew 22 and in Mark 12. And in Luke, we have an exploration of this. It's just a bit different. In fact, in Matthew, and this will be important, in Matthew, Jesus specifically notes that love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, soul, and mind is the first commandment. And the second commandment is like it, Love your neighbor as yourself. And in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the is like it is the same phrase as was used in Genesis 1 when man and woman are created in the image of God. In other words, just as a human being is in the likeness of God, so too the commandment love your neighbor is in the likeness of the commandment, love God with all your heart. 
In any event, that's in Matthew. Here in Luke, the lawyer approaches. Now, this is, this is probably for the original audience. This is a good guy. The lawyer is the guy in your community who helps you know how to obey God. There's a lot of Jewish laws. And if you're just the ordinary person, not a bad thing to have someone help you navigate that. And so this rabbinical lawyer is entering into uh, a conversation with Jesus, but he's not automatically a guy with a, a, bad, a bad background. As a, you know, I think contemporary Christians sometimes have a negative view of the Pharisees. I think the you know, original Christian is listening to this and thinking, this is probably, you know, this, I know these guys. They're helpful. And he approaches, and he approaches with a certain attitude. And the attitude is betrayed by two moments in the text. His opening attitude is, desi- uh, is shown by this phrase, desiring to put Jesus to the test. And then later, we, we see that he, he desires to justify himself. So there's a little bit of an insecurity here, a little bit of a chip on the shoulder, something like that. He's trying to match wits with Jesus. He's trying to, in doing so, reveal his own talent, maybe. Something like that. You've never done this. Neither have I, right? And, and so we have this lawyer approaching Jesus. Now the presenting question is that question from those other two passages, from Matthew and Mark and now in Luke. The presenting question is about these, these two laws. So he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life. What's written in the law? Jesus asks. His response is a good answer. In fact, it's a good answer that maybe was one he had heard from Jesus in another setting because Jesus apparently had taught on this before and this was a major theme in Jesus' teaching. Two commandments fully summarized all the law. Love God and love your neighbor. We've heard Jesus preach on this before to his people. So maybe this lawyer had been present, or maybe not. Maybe this is a theme that he was familiar with himself from other sources. In any event, he says a very Jesus-like thing. Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. And if you are at all familiar with Jesus' teaching, this is a good spot, if you're the lawyer, to say, oh, and then to exit, because the conversation has gone really well for you. You answered correctly. Do this and you will live. All right, sir. Have a good day. But the lawyer desiring to justify himself, (laughs) this is dangerous, says, ask, who is my neighbor? Now, remember, the original question was, uh, from that law, love your neighbor as yourself. So to say, who is my neighbor, is an, it's, let's paraphrase that as, who am I to love as myself? That's the question that he's asking. If you want to obey the law, who are we to love as ourselves? Now, he's quoting from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, in which it appears, as you read it, the Leviticus passage, chapter 19, verse 18, uh, that the law is about loving someone who is in, your, in Israel, your, uh, someone of your own kin, of your own nation, because the phrase is the sons of our people. That's the love, the, the love your neighbor as yourself is in the context of, 
of the sons of our own people. And so, uh, you, you might be expecting Jesus' answer to maybe orient yourself towards the Jews. And so let's see what Jesus does next. Because, because again, he's, we're, gonna, we're exploring a verse that appears to be about loving Jews as you love yourself, Jews. Remember, it's from the Hebrew Bible. This is not a problem. This is, this is what you would expect in the Hebrew Bible. But now we're in the New Testament and Jesus is, is teaching. Now, at this point, I just want to say to the children here, the boys and girls in the room, uh, we're going to get into this parable. And I, uh, last, the last sermon I preached this morning, uh, earlier this morning, the, uh, I had a number of really good versions of this, but I'd love you to pick up a pen, or if you have a crayon, that'd be cool, and just take a sheet of paper if you have one, and I'd love to see your best picture of the Good Samaritan helping the man in need of care. If you want to do that, I'd love to see it after the sermon. Um, so, but let's go and now let's jump to that text, to this, this story, because this is Jesus's answer. Sometimes Jesus teaches his answer, sometimes he tells a story, and Jesus's answer in this case is to tell a story. So here his, here's his story. Um, again, this is, by the way, on page 869, if, you're, if you have, uh, if you want to read it. I, I gather there are Bibles in the pews, and they're just an arm's length away. Page 869. Um, it'd be helpful if you had it with you. Have I guilted you enough? <laughs> I'm just kidding around. Sort of. <clears throat> so here's the parable. Jesus replied, a Jew was going down from Jerusalem. That's not what he said. He didn't say that. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, already Jesus has taken Leviticus 19 and he's made a comment on it. The sons of your people in Leviticus 19, 18, is being expanded here because Jesus is inviting us with this universal word, a man, a person, a human. He's inviting us to stretch out our understanding of what a neighbor is much further than perhaps we were expecting. But he's also doing something else. In the tradition of Nathan the prophet, all the way back in 2 Samuel chapter 12, I believe, he approaches his situation by telling a story about a man. When Nathan, the prophet, approaches David, David has just committed adultery and just caused the murder of a man. And Nathan, the prophet, has to approach the king of Israel who can muster armies. He comes into his court as Amos came into the king's court as the friends of Lear came into his court, he comes in and he has to speak a word of truth. And this is the way Amos does it. He doesn't come right at him. He comes from the side. He says, a certain man, a certain rich man. And then he tells a story about the way this man did an injustice to a widow. Or was it a poor man? I forget now. But the point is, he introduces a story about a man 
Now, when he does that, he universalizes the lesson that's in this story. It's not a particular story about David. It's a story about anyone who does this kind of injustice anywhere. And David draws the point. And he says, David does. When Nathan says, what should happen to this man? David says, this man should die. He makes a universal claim that this man should be punished for this kind of thing anywhere at any time whenever it's done. And at that point, Nathan tips his hand and says, you are the man. And when David experiences this, through Nathan's teaching method, through his prophetic method, David is able to be laid bare, to receive the judgment of the Lord in a good way. And then that leads him to repentance. The universal the man or a man includes me, David, even the king. And now I know that I need to come and receive judgment as well as give repentance. When we jump forward to Jesus, Jesus begins his story by universalizing the story. He invites us to place ourselves in the story or to place anyone else in the story. This isn't just a story about Jews. It could be a story about anyone, about people. He also invites us to recast Leviticus 19. Our people, the sons of our people, are all the sons, as it were, of Adam. So here we are in this parable. And you know the story. Robbers fall on this man. They evidently steal from him, although that's actually not the point that's stressed. They strip him of his clothing. They beat him as if to add insult to injury, and they leave him on the side of the road to die. And the phrase that's given to us, they leave him half dead, verse 30. Half dead. Now, by chance, there's a priest going down the road, and likewise, there's a Levite. And I don't want to spend time differentiating too much the difference between the one and the other. By now, we have a lawyer, a Jewish rabbinical lawyer in the conversation. We have in the story a priest and a Levite. I think the point that I want you to draw from this in short is that we have the conventional leaders and religious leaders that your eye would go to as the spiritual guides of the day. And what we're told in the story about this priest and this Levite is that when they see the man who's now lying half dead in the ditch, they walk around. They go to the other side of the road. They avoid getting anywhere near him. Some will comment on this, that it's about uncleanliness and rabbinical. I'm not going to go there. The point here, I think, is that when given the opportunity to draw close and to show mercy, they went to the other side of the road and did not draw close and did not show mercy. And these are the people that you might expect to be models of spiritual leadership. No one is surprised at this point because we've all heard this sermon before. Let's be honest. You and I have all heard this sermon before. Once every year or two in our lives, we hear a sermon on the parable of the Good Samaritan. And honestly, I'm taking up way too much time on the sermon because we all really know what the point of the sermon is. The point of the sermon, as we all know, as we've heard many times before, is that 
at the end of this day, at the end of this sermon, we need to be charged to go out and to show mercy and kindness to other people. That's the point of the Good Samaritan parable we all know. We go out, we show mercy, maybe we volunteer a little bit more, we get involved in a good charitable organization, we cross some bridges, we bridge some divides, we look for reconciliation, and honestly, Jesus plays right into our hands on this sermon that we're all used to hearing, because he gives us a racial and a religious divide. We've got a Jew We're going to impute Jewishness initially to this man, but he's actually just a universal man. And we have a Samaritan. And the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get along very well. They were genuine heretics. They were not worshiping rightly. They did not believe correctly. They were monotheists, but they weren't doing it the right way. Um, This is an order of magnitude more than the difference between like a Baptist and an Anglican. This is a big deal, this difference. We don't like these people. And uh, they're also racially contaminated. They're more mixed than a Jew ought to be. And so you can make a strong racial reconciliation point here, and you can make a strong religious reconciliation point here. But I want to be honest. I don't think that's the central point. That sermon that I heard, I don't think that's the central point that Jesus is teaching. Jesus is doing something different. And I'll I'll try to show you why I think this. So these two men walk by. The Samaritan sees and has compassion. He has compassion. Compassion literally means, the etymology just means to suffer with. To suffer with. He goes over to the man. He dresses his wounds. He pours oil and wine on his wounds. it's, It's like soothing, comforting, healing. He puts him on his own animal, and that means he's walking now the rest of this this long road. And he walks the journey, this Samaritan does, to an inn. And at the inn, he imparts the wounded, half-dead man to the care of the innkeeper, pays for a portion of his stay while he's healing, while he's recovering, and promises that he'll come back and finish paying off that debt. And at the end of the story, Jesus, he finishes the story, no further comment, he asks a question. He says to the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And this is where I think Jesus comes to us in disguise. The way Lear's friends came to him in disguise. Because Lear couldn't see the truth because he was too much of a fool to admit his own weakness. He was the king, after all, the measure of all things. And as we know, some of us, perhaps more than others, me certainly, it's hard to hear the truth. I'd sometimes rather send the person who wants to tell me the truth out of the room and surround myself with lies. So Jesus is going to present this truth in disguise. Now, if we go back to the very beginning, uh, the, the initial question that is asked was, who is my neighbor? And remember, my neighbor is the person I am to love as myself. Who is my neighbor? 
So who is the person I'm to love as myself? Now, read Jesus's, his summary question at the end of this parable. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Who was the neighbor? This is not a rhetorical question. Who was the neighbor? The Samaritan. Jesus cuts right off the list the man in the ditch. Who was the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? All, that are, all the options that are left for us are the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan. The neighbor is the Samaritan, and the lawyer says it. The one who showed mercy, had compassion, is the neighbor. Who is the neighbor in this story? The neighbor is the one I am to love as myself. The commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, here applied is about the man in the ditch loving the Samaritan, not the other way around. We have to take off the hero hat, throw it off to the side, climb down into that ditch and recognize that we're half dead. And if someone doesn't stop by soon, we're going to be all the way dead. Are you in the ditch with me? That's what Jesus is teaching here. Now, for those of you who are saying, hey, wait a minute, where do we get, we need some, the mercy ministry part of this, where is that? Hang on, I think we can get there. But we're in the ditch. You're half dead. You're not going to show mercy to anyone. You can't even get up and do anything. You're the thief on the cross. You're the boy who's dead. You're the woman with the hemorrhage who's unclean. You're the leper. You're the man with the demon possession. You're the traitor. You're the guy who denied Jesus. That's what our Gospels are. They are a catalog of everyone that Jesus meets who needs a hero to save them. Uh, so often when we read the Gospels, the exercise we go through is to try to figure out which character is about us. Because we want to be the hero. The application part of the sermon is so often our work making ourselves the hero. Well, that may be good at times. But the hero of this story isn't you and it's not me. The hero of the story, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The hero of the story of the Bible. The hero of the cosmic story of the universe is Jesus Christ. Not only is He the only hero, He's the only one who can be capable of being a hero because we're in the ditch. Now, when Moses is before the burning bush, God says to him, I saw the suffering of my people and I came down. Look, look it up. I came down. Jesus crosses the street. He comes down. In his compassion, he draws close to us. Think about that thief on the cross for just a minute. That man was heading to his death on the cross, independent of Jesus. He was going there. And the only way he could meet Jesus was if Jesus got 
up on a cross himself and was able to meet him in that place. How great is the compassion of the hero of this story that he will not only come down from heaven, wrap himself in poverty, but he will get onto the cross next to the thief so that he can offer him a word of comfort. It is a powerful story, the parable of the Good Samaritan, but it's not about us. Or it is about us in a way, but we just don't get to be the hero. We are lying in that ditch. Now, the word Amos, the prophet, had to bring to Israel was a word of judgment that should have led to repentance. King Lear couldn't hear the truth because the truth would have required him to be honest about himself, and he didn't want to. And he was so committed to his own lies in his heart about himself that he told his loving daughter to leave. But our Savior is committed to us even more than we're committed to our lies. And like the Samaritan, he goes into the ditch, he dresses our wounds, He carries the man to the inn and he pays his debt. He promises to return and to make things right in the end. It really does sound like Jesus, this Samaritan. So, Jesus says, you go and do likewise. It's a haunting final statement. What am I to do likewise? Volunteer for a charity? No. Love your neighbor as yourself. Follow me here. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor who is in the image and likeness of God who is perfectly in the image and likeness of God? Jesus Christ himself. That is the one that we are called to love fully from our position of need in the ditch, half dead and dying. There is no health in us. We said these words earlier today. There's no health in us. Jesus is the one who comes close and gives us his health, his love. He pays our debt. So I commend to you the painful, excruciating at times exercise of self-examination and repentance as the necessary preparation for any mercy and love or reconciliation you wish to do in the world to go into the world and seek racial reconciliation, to seek economic justice, to talk in those terms even, requires first that we climb into that ditch and live in that space of our sin. Not as some antiquated thing that happened a long time ago, but as our ongoing weekly exercise of repentance and faith. We are qualified to show mercy if we have not loved Jesus 
as the Samaritan who has shown us mercy. So to do likewise is to receive the free gift of grace that is given to all of us in Christ. You go and do likewise. Almighty God, we pray that your word would dwell richly in our hearts and that you would not abandon us to our sin, to our death, that you would not abandon us to our pride or to our folly, but that you would draw close always and bring us out of the ditch. Some people in this room perhaps especially feel themselves in a ditch, but all of us are. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, the one who taught us to love. Amen. Please stand and join us.